Let me start with a question this morning, uh, rather simple. You know, have you ever thought about, and I've, I've talked about this before, I used this before, have you ever thought about how a kite flies? I mean, it's just a simple question. How, how does a kite fly? You know, what makes a kite go up in the air? You know, I, I Googled it, and you can get some pretty interesting answers, and some of it can get kind of technical, quite frankly. You know, it starts talking about lift and drag and gravity and just airfoils and stuff that I don't get because I'm not smarter than a sixth grader which I'm reminded of every time I help my sixth grader do her homework. Um, and so I get it, to get real simple, it, 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 it's simply this. You know, you've got this, this nylon angry bird, you know, flat panel here, and uh, you have uh, a string, you know, that comes down, and of course you hook a string to this. And then what's the third thing that you have to have for a kite to fly? Wind, absolutely. You know, and, and you, know, you, can, you know, you can pull it and make that wind, you know, the wind's blowing, and... In principle, what's happening is the, you know, the wind's blowing this way and the kite's at an angle. You know, the kite's not like this. The kite's at an angle. So when the wind strikes, the, 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 hits the nylon, right, it, it causes it to rise up the wind. You know, for those of you who aren't smarter than a third grader, it's this simple, you know, and this would be me too. Remember you stick your hand out the car window? You Remember you're driving down the car with your dad and you're going, ooh, 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 you know, you're going up and down because you put your hand like that and the wind goes, your hand goes up. That's the same thing with a kite. Now, keeping it extremely simple, uh, wind, kite, and string, this kite cannot climb, cannot soar unconnected from the string. That's the one thing I just want you to think about this morning. And I'm going to refer back to the kite a little bit later, but I'm going to suggest that there's something, if we imagine ourselves as a kite, that there's something... Specifically, that when we're not connected to it, we can't fly. We don't soar. That, that, that I would say in the Bible teaches, unconnected to this, we're not fully human. We're not all that God intends us to be, and we will never do all that God intends us to do, unconnected from. And the simple answer here is unconnected from God, which is absolutely true. But in our text today, we find there's something even more specific that the parable we're going to study addresses. We've come to the last complete parable in, in the book of Luke. Uh, he'll say a parabolic saying here a little bit later, but it's not a complete parable. Uh, from a timeline perspective, we are in the last week of Jesus' life, the Passion Week, the week of suffering. It's Wednesday when we read this story. So Jesus is telling the story, it's Wednesday. In two days, he's on the cross. And so we, we keep that context because his words, they are, they're heightened, if I can say it like this. You know, a man's last words. They're like the little, you know, vials of uh, uh, scent you get at a store or whatever. You know, you get the lemon scent, you smell it. It's like, whoa, you know, it just lights up your whole head. You know, it's so concentrated and strong. That's what these words are like. Of course, all his words matter. But these are the last ones that he speaks before he hangs upon the cross. Alexander McLaren, he says it like this, and I like the two words that he uses. He says, as the crisis came near, that is the cross. And again, we're on Wednesday Two days. As the crisis came near, Jesus increased his severity and plainness of speech. His severity and plainness of speech. You know, this is, we get here in this last week and Jesus is, is saying things and it's absolutely, it's like, ah! 
It's obvious what he's saying. There's no hidden things here. And the severity is just as strong. If you've got your Bibles open to Luke 20, verses 9 to 18... We're going to see for ourselves that, boy, with this parable he tells us, y'all, it's really plain. I mean, I'm not going to add much to it. It's just plain. It is what it is. It's quite easy to understand. Uh, But we'll also see the severity of his words because when we understand the parable, we see the devastation that awaits those who miss what he says. So if you're there in your Bibles, let me set the context In fact, Michael set the context last week as he took the back end of chapter 19 and the first eight verses of chapter 20, and the the topic got introduced. The scribes and Pharisees look at Jesus and say, by what authority do do you say these things and do you teach these things? It was a relevant question because as Michael described, rabbis, when they taught, they always cited others. And so rabbinic teaching is always like case law. So a rabbi would say, well, rabbi so-and-so said, and therefore I say, and rabbi so-and-so, he did all that. Jesus comes along, and what does Jesus do? (laughs) It's like Jesus comes along and Jesus says, this is what God says, this is what God means, and this is what it'll mean for you if you don't obey it. And it drives them nuts. Why? Because that's not the way you do it. You gotta cite some authority. And so they say, tell us what authority, by what authority do you do this? And what does Jesus do? Jesus asks them a question that they can't answer. And then it ends, look in your Bibles at verse 8 of chapter 20. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, let me take an aside, just a two-minute aside. I want you to think about the implication of what's just happened here and what's happening and I want to be very careful how I say this because it's, it's very appropriate and legitimate. And I, I just invited everyone to the starting point class. It's a safe place to ask questions, interact. So that's very good. But, but I, don't, I don't want to go there and miss what I think is quite explicit in the, in the text itself and in what happens. And it would be this. Jesus is not obliged to answer all my questions. He's not beholding, he's not held hostage by the questions he won't answer. In other words, I can't, Jesus, I'll believe, as soon as you answer all my questions, I'll believe in you. That won't work. That doesn't work. And we know even by the context here in what happens, he doesn't answer their question, but they're still held accountable for what they do with him. I've said this many times before, and, I, and, and I'll say it again. Y'all, I've got questions. I'm just telling you, I read my Bible I read the Old Testament, and I read my Bible, and things don't make sense to me. I have questions about why God does certain things, and how could he do that, and why would... I've got questions about life and things that happen. I don't know... I've got questions, okay? But what God has made abundantly clear is that when it comes to who Jesus Christ is, God has determined that in these 66 books, he has revealed All that's required to know. He's the son of God who lived a perfect life that we couldn't. 
who took our sins upon himself and therefore he died upon the cross. He was buried, he was dead and buried and he rose again for he had no sin of his own. All that we need to not just know it, but believe that it's here. God said, I've given you enough. And so what the Bible does is it, it turns the table. You know, we can't go to God and say, you must answer my question. But I'm going to tell you, God turns the tables on us and he asks a question of every one of us. Anyone looking on video and, you know, watching this one day. Who do you say Jesus is? We've all got to answer that. And according to the Bible, we have everything we need to know to be able to answer that correctly. And we will never be able to stand before God and go, well, you know, there were three, you you got 48 questions, but there were three that you never answered. And therefore, I don't. Such a warning for us that just rises, it seems to me, from this interaction. Well, step back into the text. The context for this parable, where it sits, is one word, authority. Okay? The question comes up, where do you get this authority? And so then he begins to tell this parable. We'll keep that in mind as we go through the story. Let's do this, if you wouldn't mind. I'm going to ask you to stand once again for the reading of God's word. And follow along with me in your Bibles. We're in Luke chapter 20 beginning in verse 9. And he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be! But Jesus looked at them. This is looking at the crowd now, because they said, and Jesus looked at them and he said, what then is this that is written? Listen, what Jesus says, he looks at them and says, when they go, that can't happen, no way. He looks at them and says, but what are you going to do with this scripture that says, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief's cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust. God, please add your blessing to this reading and this study of your word. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. When I say this phrase, baseball, mom, and apple pie, what nation am I describing? I mean, America. 
You know, we've got a, a, a symbol that's kind of our DNA, that's our icon. It's an animal. What animal symbolizes, you know, the land of freedom, America? What animal comes to your mind? An eagle. So we all know that. We all get it. Listen, when we read this parable, understand that every Jew, just like that, knew. When he starts talking about a vineyard, that's us. You know, we, we could cite Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage. Just understand, they knew when this uh, parable is being told that they are the vineyard. Uh, this is, again, I said it's a plain parable. And so this is not one of those when, after he told it, you remember early in the ministry of Christ, he would tell a parable and the, and the disciples would, would walk away going, what, what was that seed? I don't know. What did they think of the, what were the birds? I have no idea. Let's go ask him. This one, they don't. Why? Because they know exactly what happens. They know exactly who's who in the parable. And, and quite frankly, I don't think it's that difficult for us either when we understand vineyard, talking about the nation of Israel. So the characters in the story are the owner plants a vineyard. Who's that? That's God. They know that. That's God. The vineyard is the nation of Israel. The vine growers would be the spiritual leaders of the nation who are there to care for and cultivate and shepherd the nation. And so when we read through this story, do you understand Jesus has just gone through several thousand years of history. He's just spoken of what's happening. And then he looks into the future all in those 10 verses. God planted a vineyard, the nation of Israel. And all through history, God would send his servants, the prophets, to call out and speak to and tell the nation, give God what's his, give him the worship that's his. And what did the nation do to all the prophets that God sent them? What did, what did they do? You tell me. They killed them. That, well, there's the story. They killed them. They beat them. It got worse. It got worse. It got worse. So Jesus has just looked all the way back at their history. Now look, Jesus stands in a present moment and he tells them what's happening and he says that the owner said, ah, what will I do? I will send my beloved son. Beloved son. This is the same phrase that was used at his baptism. This is not any son. This is Jesus. See, it's like Jesus is going, it's me. It's, and they all know it's him, that he's the son of God. He's the son of the guy who planted the vineyard, the son of God. How do we know that they know it's him? Look at verse 19 back in your text. It says, the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour and they feared the people for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. Does everybody see that? So that they're listening and they're going, oh my gosh, he just told us what we did all our lives, all our history. Now he's telling us what we're doing right now, we're, that we're going to kill him. He's, he's telling us what we're getting ready to do. The, the religious leaders are thinking. And then he turns and he looks forward in time and he says, what's he going to do? He's going to destroy the religious leaders. He's going to destroy the vine growers. He's going to give the vineyard to others. What's that a picture of? It's, it, think of it this way. It's a picture of the, the, the gospel itself, the message of salvation that was entrusted to the nation of Israel is now given to others. Who's it given to? You read through the book of Acts and what do we, what do we find? Who gets entrusted with it? Jesus and the apostles. And, and you go into the book of Acts and lo and behold, who, who gets entrusted with it? The Gentiles, me and you, you know, it, it's, it's, it's passed on. Now, this isn't, this isn't permanent, as we'll see in a moment or in a couple of weeks. It's until what the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles fulfilled, until all who God has called are, are in of the Gentiles. But, but Jesus has just outlined all that. 
I mean, how about that? We just swoop all the way across that in 10 quick verses. When the people hear it, it's like a light bulb explodes in their brains. See, they, 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 he says this, and he, you know that phrase, may it never be. Uh, that, that's the strongest no in the Greek language. So it is literally, no, 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 uh, uh, not in a million trillion years. And that's, that's what's coming out of them. This ain't gonna happen. And when you think about the Jewish nation, this makes a ton of sense to me because for them, they're going, that, that's not gonna happen because we're God's chosen people. Do you not know that? We have the law. We, we, we've got all the advantages. And for, you don't understand, we're the apple of God's eye. And can I say this? They are. That's why I'm going, I get why they're going, no way, Jose, you know, because they go, that, that's not gonna happen to us. Here's what they missed. It wasn't about them. It was never about them. It was about whom would come through them. If I can say it this way, God did choose the nation. There's no nation on the planet, okay, even to this day, that's a, a, the a blessed of God that doesn't exist. Not America, not anyone else. But they were chosen to be, if I can say it this way, the womb through which the Savior would come. That was their purpose. And so now we get to this right here, and here's what's happening in time. The very reason for their existence, I mean, the very reason God planted the vineyard, called one man out, Abraham, was standing before them, the Son of God, the man, Jesus Christ, and they miss it. The very reason for everything's there, and they miss it. Let me take... Just one more aside, if I can, okay? We're going to come right back to the text, but I want to pull something out of the text as we think about what just happened. Did they have greater privileges than any nation on the planet? Yes or no? When it comes to spiritual, knowing God? Yes, this is not a trick question. Did they, have, did they have more advantages than any nation on the planet? They, I mean, we can't deny that. Yes, 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 yes. They had all of that. And they miss it. I, I want to invite you to join me because I did this and I still do it to step away from the text and just stand in front of the mirror for a moment and go, do I have privileges that 99% of the people on the planet don't have? Do I? I'm just testing. Do I? Yes, I do. Do I have unbelievable advantages and access to, to the truth? Do we? Just, oh my gosh, y'all! I mean, and, and on on a globe today, an electronic, you know, connected place, there are still people who don't have who don't have Bibles and who only have maybe portions or have none. I've got 20 Bibles on the shelf. I don't know how many you have. I'm just going our access to the truth. We are privileged beyond. I mean, it's crazy. And here's the challenge. We're, we're no different than they were. And just like we say that, that good can be the enemy of the best, I want to suggest as here, privilege and advantage can actually keep us from the truth. 
It really can. Because we look at them and go, how'd you guys miss it? And the truth is, I just need to stand in front of the mirror and go, how many times do I miss it? With all the truth that's available to me. It's just a warning. Just a sober warning. Out of this, quite frankly, very heavy text. Well, he ends the parable by changing the metaphor, doesn't he? He, Now he's not talking about a vineyard, he's talking about a stone. And he describes himself as the stone, the chief cornerstone. It's it's believed that it it, it comes from a, a time when they were building the temple and they would carve out these huge stones. And of course, they would have to haul them to the building site. You know, they didn't do it there. And that when they were doing that, they would bring a stone in and the builders would look at it and go, it doesn't fit, it's wrong, whatever, and they would reject it. So they would take this huge stone, they would reject that stone, only to find later in the building process that that stone that was rejected, oh my gosh, it's the corner, it's the main stone. It's the stone that's so level and true and perfect that all the other stones line up upon it. And if it wasn't, the building would be crooked. It would rise up and lean like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It's the cornerstone, but we rejected it at first. Jesus says, I'm that stone. Peter, who's standing there when Jesus is saying these things, writes in uh, 1 Peter, he says, the the living stone that people rejected. He goes on to say, and and, and they rejected it because they were disobedient to the stone. So it's, it's just plain that Jesus says, I'm the stone that's being rejected right now, but oh my, I'm the cornerstone. And the severity of the passage, well, the stone, you're either gonna stumble on it or it's going to crush you if you don't. What's the context for the whole passage? That I said at the very, what one word did I say is the context for the whole passage? Authority. If you don't come under the authority of Christ, then this stone, listen, you'll bump into it and it'll mess you up or it'll cr- fall on you and it'll crush you. It's, it's all the same. It's kind of like, did the bug flying, did the bug hit the windshield or did the windshield hit the bug? I mean, what difference does it make? The bug is dead. The stone, you don't submit to the authority of the stone. You run into it, you're going to be destroyed. It's going to fall on you and destroy you. So there's the parable. Okay, we go through it and I go, that's pretty severe. And yes, that's quite plain what it means. So what? So what do we do with it? Well, verse 16, notice the crowd says, May it, it says, when they heard it, they said, may it never be. When they heard it, heard is a Greek word, akua, which, from which we get acoustic. But the meaning in this word is not just that your, you know, inner, the, your inner ears are vibrating right now because you're hearing my voice. It's not audible per se. It's to say that it's understood. That's why I said earlier, see, when, when he told this parable and he's telling it, telling it, it's like ding, 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 ding. I mean, the light bulbs are just exploding in their mind. And they go, no, you can't, that can't happen. And so they come to a place, this is very sobering, where they understand what he's saying. But watch this. From this day, two days later, most of them will cry crucify him. And, and don't you scratch your head and you go, wait a minute. If they get it, how do they get here? And y'all, it's, I don't mean to be overly simplistic, but it's as basic as 
I mean, you can understand this. But if you don't come under the authority of it, if you don't trust it, if you don't believe it, can I say a word we say a lot around here? If you don't apply it, then you're crying, crucify him, and the stone will crush you. It's, it's that simple. See, it's, it's not enough to go, he, it's not enough to acknowledge Jesus is the son of the living God. Yeah, yeah, he, he died on the cross. That's right. He died on the cross for sins. He was buried and raised again. I mean, if that's it, the stone will crush you because there's a huge difference between knowing that and submitting to that and believing that it's true and it's true for me. How do we not make their mistake? Well, I want us to consider in these last few minutes a couple of truths that I think are in the text that I'm just going to walk through and and, and talk about. And I'm going to trust that the Spirit of God in you will convict, will enlighten, will turn the light on, and the Spirit himself will enable you to take whatever step of faith that truth requires of us. Let's not miss this gap with this truth. Here's the first thing about God. Let me say this. In principle, God always has the greater good and his highest glory behind all that he says and does. I'm going to say it again. God always has the greater good and his highest glory behind all that he says and does. And I think it's so evident in the text. Because if you, for a moment, put yourself in God's place, just do this, just think about it for a moment. What if you were God and you planted the vineyard? And every time you sent someone over there to get what was yours, they were killed or came back beaten. You know, they got three people in this story, but Mark tells us, you know, it's really the whole Old Testament. So it's all the prophets over and over and over again. What would you do when you asked yourself the question, what shall I do? (laughs) Can I tell you what I would do? You know, I would not do that. Look, I would not do that. I would not do that. Which reminds us that God's love is so far beyond our own. I mean, the gap is so wide, it's infinite. Because God says, after all of that, they killed them all, I'll send my beloved son. And he does. And it just reminds us, you know, let's just think about this about God. Why would he do that? Well, what did I say in principle? God always has the greater good and his highest glory behind all that he says and does. Why would he do that? Because behind all that he says and does is the greater good and his highest glory. He knows they're going to kill him and crucify him. That he might redeem people like me and you unto himself. And you kind of, I mean, I kind of go, God, are there no limits to your love? And God goes, no, there's no limits to my love, right? I mean, he loves those who kill his son, which includes me and you. There's just no limit to his love. But there's a limit 
to the time you have to respond to it. Don't ever forget that. Because some, I'm telling you the parable says it, will be crushed by this stone. Who will that be? It'd be those who don't in time submit to his authority. Let me put this in a way that's maybe closer to where we live right now. I want you to think about a circumstance in your life that's just whacked out, that's, you know, it's not good. It's extremely difficult, whatever. Always remember that that God himself never, and this story makes clear, never responds, you know, based upon his enemies. He never, he never makes a decision based upon the circumstance. Oh, that didn't go like it should have. I'm going to have to do this. He never does that. God always acts in utter perfect consistency with himself. See, so he's not affected by, you know, anything outside. It's just within himself he acts. And so how does he always act? This case is, reminds us of what he always does. He acts in grace. Everybody deserves to be wiped out, but he acts in grace and he sends his son. He always acts in ways that are for the greater good and his highest glory. So whatever's going on in your life and mine, and I got stuff in my life that I don't like. It's just like, I can't believe that's happening. Where are you, God? Are you not in control? Why did you do that? I got all of that going on. But when we come back to our Bibles, we find that he's always acting... He cannot act otherwise. How can I say this stronger than for the greater good and his highest glory, which means whatever's going on in your world, even right now. I'm not saying it's easy or it feels good or is good per se. But the Bible tells us it's for the greater good and for his highest glory. Let me give you a second truth, okay? That's about God. Let me talk about us. I think we can pull out of the parable, this principle at least. When we reject God's authority, we make devastatingly foolish choices. Whenever a person rejects, you know, rejects God's authority, then, then we, that person, we, me, we make devastatingly, I'm talking foolish, foolish choices. Think about the religious leaders here. Why, I mean... Why are they doing this? And this was interesting to me. Do, do, in the parable, do the vine growers know the identity of the heir when he comes in the parable? Yes or no? Yeah. So you see, they're, they're not sitting there going, uh, you say you're the heir, but we don't think you are. You say you're the son, but I don't. They know that's the son. Understand the religious leaders of Israel, men and women, They crucified Jesus, not because they didn't know he was the son of God. You get this? They knew he was the son of God. Does that make sense? So, so, you know, it's not like they're going, man, if you, you know, if we knew you were the son of God, we wouldn't have crucified you. (laughs) No, they know he's the son of God. Then why in the world would they do that? What's the context for the whole parable? What's the word? What's the context we're in? So they know that, but they will not, what? Submit to his authority. 
So that's why I'm saying you can know everything about Jesus, but if you don't submit to his authority, if you don't bow the knee to Jesus, then the stone crushes. Which takes me all the way back to the kite, right where we began. I said, could you imagine yourself as a kite? And, I, and I'm taking this principle that when we reject God's authority, see, we were made, you and I were made to live under God's authority. And I'm just using this, you know, it's a little met analogy for you of connect under God's authority. This is what we were made, this is how we were made to live. And this is the only way we fly, if I can say it that way. When we disconnect from God's authority, okay, when we remove ourselves from the authority of God, I'm just going to tell you, we you float, I guess, for a moment. But we make, it leaves us to some utterly foolish decisions, just like them. Listen to this. Think about what happens here. They think and act like they own what they've only been loaned. Isn't that what they're doing? So they're, they're, they're going to, they're gonna, we, we, we own this thing. And the truth of the matter is they never owned it. And they never will. But they act like it. So they think and act like they own what they've only been loaned. Listen to this. When we remove ourselves from God's authority, our values just get totally turned upside down. On the face of it, let's just take the parable on the face of it, and we can say this. They think it's more valuable to own grapes than a human life. That's what happened. We'd rather own a vineyard. And they can't, you see what I'm saying? It's like, this is, this is what? Remove yourself from God's authority and your values just get totally out of whack. And then I would suggest this. They were given a stewardship of the nation. And they get to this point when the son comes and they kill him. And I'm gonna phrase it this way because control becomes more important to them than faithfulness. What they have in the religious system it's working. I'm telling you, for the religious leaders in particular, I'm telling you, the financially it's working, socially it's, it's, work, it's working. So they'd rather have control, okay, than faithfulness to God. Now, when I go through those three things, I don't know about you, I go, okay, they think and act like they own what they've only been loaned. Hmm. Their values get inverted and they think grapes are more valuable than, hmm. Control is more important than faithfulness. Hmm. When I leave that, I go, man, that sounds a lot like me. I actually get pretty comfortable with the vine growers because I go, I do that. Don't we do that? I mean, is there, is there a more, um, I was going to say, try to think of the right word here, more utterly uh, stupid thought than this? I'm in control. Now, really, now, now we think it, don't we? But when, we, when we're reasonable, smart people, don't we realize I'm not in control of any... No, I'm not in control. But we live our lives, I do oftentimes, wanting to control. And, and so when I'm faced with the choice of faithfulness or control, where do I 
I'm just going to control it. When God's saying, I want you to be faithful with it. I tell you what we find when we remove ourselves from God's authority, when we choose not to live there under it, is we find that the most dangerous authority that we can live under is our own. It's a terrible place to live. We think that it's the best place, but can I tell you this? Let me tell you where the best place is. To put yourself under the authority of the one who said, what shall I do? I'll send my son. You Put yourself under that authority, you see. That's the invitation. That's the kite string connected to the kite. Got a few minutes I want to give you to just think for a moment. We always say, so what? Okay, what, so what do we do with this? Because if, if some lights have gone on in your mind, okay, please understand that that's wonderful. But what the truth of God's word calls us to is to transform us. And it does that as we, as we live it, as we apply it. And so I want you to take a moment right now and let the spirit of God convict, encourage whatever he must do to remind you of what that step of faith is. Take a few moments right now and just think about it and then I'll conclude this.